Hello, and welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, a production of Movement is Life. I'm Dr. Jennifer Harper, and I'm a proud member of the Movement is Life Caucus, where I am privileged to work with a wonderful group of individuals and organizations in advancing health equity. And my day job is serving as the Chief Clinical Officer with Anthem National Accounts. This will be the first in a series of podcasts exploring the concept of value in healthcare. And we're going to be discussing how value is operationalized in payment models and how these payment models impact all stakeholders, including the most important stakeholder of all, our patients. So joining me today is a fellow colleague of mine who also serves on the Movement is Life Executive Steering Committee, Bill Finnerfrock. Bill serves as the president of Capital Associates. And prior to becoming president of Capital Associates in January of 2014, He was senior vice president in the firm for more than 20 years. Bill specializes in healthcare financing, health systems reform, health workforce, and rural health. Welcome, Bill, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Dr. Harper, and thanks for the opportunity to participate in the podcast. I think this is an important conversation we're going to have today, and one that a lot of people sometimes I don't think understand uh, what what we mean when we talk about value in healthcare. So, Uh, I'm looking forward to talking with you and Thomas today. Thank you again, Bill. So also joining me today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Thomas Dorney. Tom is a director at the Root Cause Coalition, a nonprofit member-driven organization comprised of more than 75 leading health systems, hospital associations, foundations, businesses, national and community nonprofits, health insurers, academic institutions, and policy centers. The Root Cause Coalition works to achieve health equity through cross-sector collaboration in advocacy, education, and research. Tom was also for many years a policy advisor to the late John Lewis, who was a great supporter of the Movement is Life Caucus and a recipient of our Vanguard Award, and who brought forth significant legislation targeting health disparities during his illustrious lifetime as a statesman and civil rights leader. So welcome, Tom, to the podcast. We are very, very pleased to have you join us today. Thank you so much. It's really good to be with you. And Congressman Lewis so appreciated Movement is Life and all the good and great work you're doing, to borrow his turn of phrase. And um, I know he was so grateful for you always keeping your eyes on the prize, as he would say. But uh, it's great to be with you today. And thank you for having me on. So let's start by learning a little about the Root Cause Coalition. What is the overall mission of the coalition and how are you working to achieve that mission? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, So as you said, Root Cause is member-led, comprised of health equity stakeholders whose primary mission is to end the systemic root causes of health inequities for individuals and communities through cross-sector partnerships. Uh, We were founded only five years ago as a joint venture between AARP Foundation and ProMedica, which is a health and well-being system out in Ohio. Um, The initial focus of the health equity work uh, focused primarily on addressing food and nutrition insecurity. But since then, um, the focus has broadened to address all types of uh, social determinants of health, housing, or whether they be from systemic racism, issues around systemic racism. 
as you mentioned, our membership is very diverse and it touches people at different points across the care continuum. But um, again, we are all focused on the collaboration um, and partnerships to develop the kind of innovations to ensure that individuals can achieve their best self. That's who we are. And as to what we're doing, um, we start from what we think of as our three pillars, education, research, and advocacy. Um, uh, on the education side, we host a yearly summit on social determinants of health and are always bringing together uh, our members for webinars and supporting working groups to, to drill down and get to the root causes of, the, of, of health inequity. Um, we uh, lift up research and are um, actually going to be um, releasing some consumer research on uh, general knowledge in the public about health equity and social determinants of health. And advocacy is our big uh, focus for the coming year. And uh, certainly one of the things we're going to be looking at is how to advocate for uh, metrics and new payment models in Medicare and Medicaid to address health inequity, but also ensure payment to care providers and non-clinical community-based organizations for, for services. Thank you for that, Tom. A very, very impressive uh, mission and vision uh, at the Root Cause Coalition. So I want to return to the subject of value. And I think most of our listeners will have some familiarity with the idea of payment models and terms like fee-for-service and value-based care. Uh, but could you share with us how these are, in fact, very different? Well, fee-for-service is exactly like what it sounds, and it's probably what most people are familiar with when they think about healthcare. Um, you know, if you have the misfortune of needing some type of treatment or service or medication, um, the uh, a third-party payer, um, whether that be a private insurer or Medicare or Medicaid, uh, will pay for that service. But it's um, it's a very reactive model of healthcare, which is where uh, when someone comes in, uh, services are paid for uh, once they're completed. Value-based care is. Um, where healthcare providers um, are incentivized with payments for quality. Yeah, I think, uh, let me try and tackle the value-based part of this uh, question, because I think it's a really important uh, aspect of the conversations we're going to be having today. You're right that I think most people are familiar with the concept of value, but how does that actually you know, apply in this context? It's certainly the antithesis of what Thomas described of a fee-for-service system, where the provider gets paid regardless of whether the services was service was of value. So take for example, you know, a patient comes in with uh, with knee pain, and the uh, the clinician orders an MRI or a CT. Well, was that necessary? Was that appropriate? Was that of value? The provider is going to get paid by ordering it, but was it really necessary? So the concept of value says, we're not only going to just pay you for what you do, but we're going to assess it in terms of whether or not that activity actually has value to the patient in terms of making them better, uh, making them healthier, or, or curing the problem that they came to you uh, with. Thank you for that answer. But I, I have another question. You know, we've had fee-for-service healthcare for a very, very long time. Right. So why have we now moved away from fee-for-service and toward value-based care models? Uh, I'll, I'll take the first crack at that. I think it's um, the, the cost of healthcare, the overall cost of healthcare has grown to such a point uh, in our economy 
where it has garnered attention in a way that it has never uh, before. Uh, if you look at employers who are paying a significant uh, portion of the healthcare bill, they're finding that it is consuming a greater and greater percentage of, of their revenues, uh, and they're wondering why. Why are we spending so much on healthcare? Individuals are seeing the cost of healthcare, whether it's at the provider level or in the form of health insurance premiums, going up and up and up. And so as it consumes more and more of everyone's dollars, the obvious question they come back with is, am I getting value? What am I getting for this money that I'm paying? And, and in response to that, question, you know, different people who are paying for healthcare and providing healthcare are now being expected to demonstrate that that they're providing value to the patient for the money that, that they're paying. So Tom, how would you answer that question, the movement away from fee-for-service toward value-based care? I think a fee-for-service is kind of like the trusty old car station wagon that's been in your family for years and years, and it's covered in bumper stickers and you used it to get to the shore when you were little and maybe you went to Disneyland, that car is getting really old. And, um, you know, at times, even in the times when it seemed to be operating well, it really never got good gas mileage, but most importantly, it wasn't really all that safe. Uh, so while we have, as Americans, always understood the importance of prevention, really what we've been doing in the old fee-for-service model is placing an enormous emphasis on treating symptoms and diseases uh, instead of the root causes of illness and poor health, uh, which led to the creation of more work and spiraling costs that Bill talked about that are out of control. Can you give some examples of value-based care models that are being used today so that our audience can have a better understanding of what we mean by value-based care? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. Um, so bundled payments is probably uh, one of the, the easier ones to maybe get our hands around. So as we talked about in fee-for-service, you know, the, the provider is paid for each particular service uh, that, that they, they deliver. So it's, a, it's kind of a piecemeal, uh, a la carte uh, approach to paying for healthcare. A bundled payment is really where they say, all right, the patient has been diagnosed with a particular problem. We're gonna pay you an amount of money to cover uh, all of the care that that patient needs in order to resolve that problem. And so we're going to bundle that all together. The analogy or metaphor I would use is, you know, I can go to the grocery store and buy all the items to make a meal, or I can go to the restaurant and I can have them prepare the meal for me. And I get all of the things that are there, the meat, the potatoes, the entrees, whatever. And so fee for service is I'm going to pay for healthcare on an a la carte basis Bundled payment says we're going to give you the whole meal, and it's up to you to figure out, you know, how to how to spend that money for each of the individual parts. That's a great example, uh, Bill. I think I'll I'll steal that analogy. Well, that's all right. Uh, I'm going to steal Tom's metaphor about the old car. <laughs> so, uh, Bill and and Tom, if you have thoughts on this one, where did these models originate? And from a policy perspective. Do these models have bipartisan support? Well, Tom, you, you supported uh, John Lewis for many, many years and are very involved in, in legislative efforts in this area. So maybe we'll start with you. Do these models have bipartisan support? Yeah, that's a really good question. The, um, this is an area that has um, surprisingly 
always uh, enjoyed uh, bipartisan, I wouldn't say support, but interest. Um, the, the idea of these types of payment models go uh, way back. They begin, I believe, in the Bush era and then were uh, more solidified in statute and in the administration during the uh, Obama administration, specifically um, in 2015 when Congress passed uh, MACRA, uh, Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act. Um, I will say that in my time with Mr. Lewis, I had um, just the, the the wonderful experience that some people have probably had, where you are staffing a member of Congress when the when the law is passed, and then you are staffing the same member of Congress when you try to fix that law as it starts to become implemented. And today, I think that there is the, that interest and support uh, remains in Congress and. Um, presently, there's uh, continuing bipartisan work going on uh, in the House and in the Senate, um, and uh, we hope to see in the next Congress, the next administration, the fruits of that. Um, again, uh, you know, healthcare is sort of siloed across geography, and I think that members from different parts of the country have always kind of had their different issues with um, this type of uh, policy, but. Again, I think um, it's kind of one of those special areas in healthcare that continues to sort of stay above the fray. Yeah, and, and Bill, I'd like to hear your perspective as well, particularly with your background and uh, specialization in healthcare financing and health systems reform. Yeah, the um, I would say that it actually I think goes back even further than uh, than, than Bush. Um, Thomas is right that that these concepts have enjoyed bipartisan support. It doesn't necessarily always flow down into bipartisan support for uh, specific policies, but the concepts that we're talking about here have had long bipartisan support. I would suggest that it actually goes back even to the 70s and 80s to uh, in the 80s, for example, when we moved hospitals to uh, diagnosis related uh, group payments, which is essentially a bundle of payment. Its foundation goes uh, back that far uh, at least. But one of the things that uh, is a key part of this also that we haven't talked about, and I think it's important to put that into the conversation because I think it ties in with uh, what we'll talk about later, hopefully when we get to the disparities discussion, and that is the concept of shifting risk. And that a key part of of many of these value-based components, in addition to trying to uh, incentivize quality, is the shifting of financial risk from the payer to the provider. So that under a fee for service example, uh, an individual provider, no matter what they do, they're gonna get paid for it. Under a bundled payment, if the provider over orders tests or orders things that aren't necessary or or potentially, um, they're potentially on the financial hook because they're only gonna get the bundled payment. And so uh, we can't have this conversation about value without also injecting in this conversation of shifting risk and and how that may affect uh, decisions on the part of the provider as we move down the road on these value-based payment initiatives. And we mentioned earlier that uh, patients were the most important stakeholder in this discussion. And we talk a lot about patient-centered care. So one of the most important questions that I'd like to ask, and I'd like to hear from both of you, as how are these payment models intended to improve care for patients? I think that that uh, in terms of from the patient's perspective, the way that they are intended to 
uh, improve. And it, and it gets at this issue I just raised, which is kind of this risk. If you, you wanna have a balance here, you want to potentially create some financial risk in the model, but not so much uh, that it discourages providers from delivering care that's necessary. And that's been one of the criticisms of, of some of the models where uh, you, you actually dis disincentivize the delivery of necessary care. From the patient's perspective, the patient doesn't necessarily um, define value the same as how the provider might define uh, value uh, in terms of what their expectations are. But the, the message to the provider is if, if you don't, if you don't meet certain quality metrics, if you don't meet certain um, uh, access metrics, if you don't uh, achieve a certain level of care, and we're going to start measuring you, and we're going to compare you to other providers to see how you do, then we're going to penalize you. So, so the idea is that you want to inject some incentive, but you want to make sure that the way that uh, they are continuing to, to deliver care is done in a way that uh, ensures that the patient gets that quality. And so uh, we've developed all these very detailed metrics to measure quality and built that into the payment model. Tom, what is your perspective on uh, how these payment models are intended to improve care for patients? What Bill said is absolutely right. And I think, you know, that as opposed to the traditional fee-for-service model where we're incentivizing volume of services, the shift to understanding and measuring what we're getting for our money and what our what the patients are getting uh, in terms of outcomes uh, becomes the most important way to, to calculate and to think about uh, our healthcare system. I think the problem there is that it quickly gets complicated because, as we all know, you know, in addition to not all providers being the same, not all people are the same. And, um, you know, people are interacting with the healthcare system with a host of different issues that, uh, that you, that the doctor may not know about, care about, can't account for, can't, can't account for, and can't address. You know, in my time with Mr. Lewis, as the value models were starting to roll out, um, you know, people were really concerned about the, the measurement of value and people would say, well, you know, I, you know, my patients, I, I'm, you know, I serve this community and, and my patients are dealing with more issues. They're not as healthy or wealthy. And um, if you are start to measure me versus, you know, uh, um, on quality, I'm just not going to compare to to some locations that um, have healthier and wealthier patients. And so um, you need to reward me not just for the quality or the outcome measures, but you need to reward me for process measures and the things that I'm doing for patients. And that's, you know, and that, and again, as you can imagine, um, you start to run the risk of uh, perhaps in instituting two different levels of quality, which is discriminatory. And, you know, how are we going to protect against that? And that's kind of the, the ongoing uh, work to make sure that the health the healthcare system serves everyone equally. So it sounds as if you know, the, the value based payment models were well intended to improve care outcomes, quality, reduce costs. But despite those goals, we are finding that there may be unintended consequences. And I think, Tom, you started to hit on that uh, in your last response. Bill, can you share with our listeners uh, any additional aspects of value-based models that have become problematic? Yeah, I mean, I think Thomas alluded to it, and you just you did as well, which is uh, this idea that the models were designed. There were two principal objectives 
to the models that that you know when they were designed they said well we want to number one uh we, we want to lower cost but we don't want to do it at the expense of quality and so we developed as we mentioned before these quality measures to ensure that we tried to achieve that that balance what they didn't take into account and and this is something that we spent a lot of time working with thomas and congressman lewis on which is how does this affect access to care you know, Thomas uh, made reference to the fact that, you know, not every patient is alike. And some patients are more challenging clinically uh, because of social determinants of health, other factors that make it much more difficult for them to achieve optimal health or uh, optimal outcomes. And so if you're going to tell a physician, for example, or a hospital, that you're going to be measured on the, the patient outcome, which is based on an average patient, or you're gonna be measured on readmission rates or hospital acquired infections for an average patient, but you deal with a patient population that has a significant number of comorbid conditions, has certain uh, social factors that, that make it much more difficult for them uh, to recover, to achieve optimal health, and you're going to penalize that hospital or that provider using measures over which they have no ability to affect, then the deficiency in the model is that, that they will, over time, start avoiding those higher cost, riskier patients because it results in them getting a lower quality score. And, and that's the real danger. That's the missing piece, if you will, of these models is that they only looked at a limited set of factors in determining what constituted value. And the key factor that they overlooked or ignored was this question of access and how providers would respond to the incentives when they were presented with more challenging patients. What I'm hearing from both of you is that the populations that are most impacted by these unintended consequences are those populations that are experiencing greater healthcare disparities to begin with. You know, this appears to align with the work of Root Cause Coalition. So which populations may be most impacted by these unintended consequences? Let me take a step back and talk a little bit about sort of where Mr. Lewis was when we were working on this issue together. I can tell you that when MACRA was starting to be implemented and we were starting to see um, a lot of momentum around the institution of these uh, payment models. Um, at, at some point during that period, I remember seeing something on paper from CMS that said that they believed that they wanted to see 50% of all Medicare expenditures coming through these payment models by 2019. It was really ambitious. And um, at, at, that, at that moment, Mr. Lewis and I sort of looked at each other and you know, uh, it kind of dawned on us that, well, you know, if we're going to change how hundreds of billions of dollars leaves the treasury in Medicare reimbursements, um, somebody really, you know, probably the senior congressional black caucus member on ways and means need to be, needs to be thinking about whether or not changing those incentives are going to exacerbate minority and rural health disparities. And, and then I realized, oh, wait a minute, that's us. We need to do something about it. So we got to work, and I think that the concern for him and us at that time was that um, for the people who are not as healthy and not as wealthy, whether they be in rural communities or urban communities, um, we need to protect them and make sure that as these models are implemented, that 
that they are designed in a way that allows the providers who are caring for them the opportunity to thrive and do the work that they're able to do. You've actually started to discuss you know, some of the solutions, um, policy solutions that may be out there. So, so Bill, maybe you can answer this question as well. Um, how can value-based payment models be improved to address these unintended consequences? I think, you know, and I suspect Thomas uh, will agree, you know, we both have been involved in Washington policy for a, for a number of years. And it's been my experience that, that there are two types of, of legislative sins that, get, uh, that occur, sins of commission and sins of omission. The sin of commission is something where it was a conscious effort to do something, and then maybe later we decided that, gee, that wasn't the best thing to do, let's fix it. But the more common type of, of experience is what I refer to as a sin of omission. That in developing a policy, you know, folks sat around a table and said, gee, you know, isn't this great? Let's look at quality, let's look at, at, at cost, and let's design a model. And then there were two problems. One is, in all likelihood, the people that were sitting around that, that table developing the policy probably looked a heck of a lot more like Thomas and I than they do like you. And, and so, uh, as a consequence, they didn't necessarily think about the ramifications of the policy and what it was gonna to do to people of color, people who came from a more disadvantaged background. And so the omission of the policy was that it wasn't designed in a way to take those factors into consideration. And so as we looked at it, and as, as we started the conversation with Thomas several years ago on behalf of Congressman Lewis, it was, what can we do to, to require people to go back and as they are designing these models, as they are thinking about how to do a value-based payment model, that they factor in these, uh, these issues into the design of the model instead of waiting as we often do, we go out, we test the model, we implement it, and then three years later, we look and go, oh crap, you know, how did all those people not get healthcare? Well, you didn't design the model in a way that, that took that into consideration. And so uh, the work that Thomas did said, let's, let's direct the people who are responsible for, for evaluating these models, for helping to design them, to tell them, you must look at these things. You must look at, at what impact the model will have on health disparities. You must look in, at what uh, access, will it create access problems for individuals based on color, gender, or geography. And, and so the idea is to go back and look at how we are designing the model and, and build it in as a sin of commission rather than trying to fix the model years later because of a sin of omission. So what you've described is it appears that these unintended consequences might have been predictable, but during the design, they were not mitigated, and none of those those issues that may have been predictable were actually addressed. Uh, you know, it's particularly concerning to me as a physician because what I'm hearing is that the populations that are already suffering the most from healthcare disparities uh, may act. This may actually lead to greater disparities, uh, though it was not intended. So, going forward, do we have a different process in place? from a policy perspective, so that in the future, we will be focused on 
disparities as we create these value-based payment models. If God hadn't decided that he needed John Lewis at his side uh, instead of on this earth, I'd be more optimistic that uh, the future policy development is, is going to factor these things in. You know, that God had a different plan in mind, and so we don't have benefit of John Lewis today. Um, but the ideas and the concepts that he was promoting uh, continue, and it would certainly is my hope, and we have uh, lined up some new individuals who will uh, carry forward uh, the, the work that was, was started by Congressman Lewis uh, in, in the form of, of Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey and Congresswoman uh, Terry Sewell uh, from Alabama. But, um, you know, Thomas, you know, maybe you want to talk a little bit about, you know, the Congressman's vision and, and what we can do to help make sure that the vision that he articulated in the Equality in Medicare and Medicaid Treatment Act uh, becomes a reality sooner rather than later. So Mr. Lewis and I decided that, that we really wanted to make sure that these new payment models and Medicare and Medicaid, as they were um, as they were coming out of the Innovation Center, were going to be set up in the future so that they could serve um, the Medicare and Medicaid populations equally, regardless of whether or not they were uh, how healthy or wealthy they were. And so I set out to find stakeholders who uh, had ideas and, and see who was working in this issue area already. And most of the time when I met with particular groups and the various viewpoints that would find their way up to Mr. Lewis's office, uh, what I would find is, um, you know, maybe a, a bill or an idea sort of rooted in addressing the social determinants of health, but it was always coming from a perspective on a that that was born from a pre-existing policy uh, agenda. And um, and you know what we were looking for though was a way to to again, um, as Bill said, uh, tailor these models so that when they're developed, that they're thinking about health disparities on the outset. Well, it was around that time that you came to the uh, the, the conference that Movement His Life hosted. Yeah, so at that point, that's when I met uh, Bill Feinerfrock and the Movement His Life Caucus. And one of the things that I heard in the conversations with Movement His Life Caucus is the perspective of providers who were saying, you know, and again, as Bill said, that the implementation of these models means that the risk is going to be shifted squarely back on the providers. And what is that? What will, How will providers react to that? That was the deep concern. So if you're a provider and you are looking at two different types of patients, maybe one is um, morbidly obese or is dealing with other comorbidities, the, how that patient might fare in whether it be a hip or knee replacement is going to be different than a patient who is much more healthier and wealthy. And um, that provider will then be on the hook for uh, uh, a payment that is based in quality where the provider may um, try to steer clear of a patient who is not as healthy or wealthy. So a few terms uh, we've heard being tossed around when we talk about value-based care and unintended consequences. I've heard about you know lemon dropping and cherry picking. So can you explain to our audience what those terms mean? I'll take a crack at it. And then Thomas, if you want to add anything, but you know, uh, cherry picking is is that a, a situation where the provider seeks out those patients who are uh, whose whose costs are going to be below the norm, 
and on whom, therefore, they have a good uh, uh, potential for uh, not being penalized and, in fact, potentially, you know, making a, a profit on the patient. So if you took two, two patients, Thomas uh, was alluding to this. Let's say you, you're an orthopedic surgeon and you have two patients who come in uh, with knee pain. One is a uh, you know, suburban 45-year-old uh, mom uh, whose kids are away at college, who plays tennis three days a week, uh, who's in pretty good shape, non-smoker, uh, but has is having knee pain uh, and uh, is probably in need of knee surgery. You have another patient who's the same age, but uh, is uh, overweight, uh, smokes, lives in a uh, an apartment building that has uh, four floors with no elevator, um, has uh, three children uh, who are living at home. She, she is a single mom uh, and uh, has, has little in the way of a support system. And these two, in, and is in knee pain and in likelihood of needing knee surgery. The, the, the provider, if cherry picking says the provider is gonna encourage that 40 year old, 45 year old suburban tennis mom, we're gonna do knee surgery because we're gonna be able to do that, get you in, get you out, get you home, get you doing the rehab, maybe a little bit of home health and you're good to go. For the other patient, the provider is going to lemon drop and avoid that patient. You know, you think about the literally the concept. You put a lemon drop, you kind of you know get that little head shake of oof. I'm not sure if I like that uh, reaction uh, to the patient, and say, you know, you're probably not a very good candidate for knee surgery. Um, we'll try some rehab. I'll give you some, some medication, take some ibuprofen, uh, go home, maybe lose some weight, uh, and then we'll, we'll look at it again. Because that second patient is much more likely to have to be, uh, you know, spend some time in the hospital, much greater likelihood that there could be the potential for rehospitalization uh, because of, of, you know, poor outcome. Uh, the rehab may not go well. They're in an apartment building, as I said, without any elevator. So the provider is going to try and avoid or lemon drop. Why? Because they are incentivized. They're getting a bundled payment that says you're going to get only so much money regardless of, of which patient. So I have a patient that is going to take you know, two days, another one that's going to take longer. One's going to perhaps be hospitalized. One maybe I can do as an outpatient. And, and my financial incentives are such that I, I, I'm attracted, I wanna cherry pick, select that low cost, very uh, you know, likely high outcome patient, and I'm gonna avoid that high cost likelihood pa patient with a high likelihood of, of poor outcome because I don't wanna be penalized. That's a little disconcerting, Bill. And uh, <laughs> as a concept, I, I certainly understand, but have we seen this happen in real life? Um, yes, unfortunately, um, we, we see examples of this type of, of response um, in, in different cir circumstances. You know, one of our colleagues uh, tells a story about some research that was done uh, a few years ago where uh, it was a secret shopper uh, experience where uh, male and female patients, in this case, it was looking at, at the response of a provider uh, based on uh, all the clinical all the insurance uh, information, et cetera, uh, the responses to the questions 
were the same uh, for a male uh, patient and a female patient, level of pain, uh, level of discomfort, level of activity. And what they found was that the, 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 the orthopedic surgeon in this case was looking at, I believe, knee pain, was 20, 20 times more likely to recommend surgery for the male patient compared to the female patient. And when they did the follow-up, the, the reasoning was that they felt that women tended to exaggerate the level of pain. So even though both may have said, if the, the, the doctor said on a scale of one to 10, uh, with 10 being you know, the most extreme level of pain and one being, you know, I'm, I'm fine, what's your level of pain? All the responses were seven. But the reaction on the part of the doctor was, well, the male is probably in more pain than the seven, but because he's a man, he's probably suppressing it. And so his seven is really an eight and a half. And they also said that, well, the woman's seven probably wasn't a seven because she's exaggerating. So it's probably only a five and a half. So we'll recommend surgery for the man because they're in more pain. And we'll, we'll recommend some medication and some stuff for the woman because she's not. And it's that, that kind of implicit bias that, that we see uh, that, that can show up here in these kinds of situations where now you've not only got an implicit bias, but you've also got a financial component to it, which is only going to exacerbate uh, that, that inherent bias that might already exist. So I, I guess this is a real life situation and it is occurring today and impacting uh, our patients adversely. I'd like to uh, spend the next few moments talking about value from the patient's perspective. Movement is Life champions equitable health care, and one of our approaches is to give a voice to patients who are representative of the populations that are most impacted by health disparities. You know, after all, we've said the patient is the most important stakeholder. So we've actually convened a series of focus groups to discuss some of the issues that we've talked about today and to get feedback from patients uh, in particular and how they define value. One of the key findings of uh, these focus groups is that there is a significant and problematic disconnect between what patients consider valuable and how value is defined in our healthcare systems. And very interestingly, the focus groups consistently stated that what's most valuable to them as patients is clear communication and being treated with respect. So one of the questions I'd like to ask of both of you is this disconnect, perhaps a major barrier to patient-centered and equitable care? Thank you for that question. And let me take another step back by saying, you know, uh, I think when, when Mr. Lewis was developing the Equality in Medicare and Medicaid Treatment Act, sort of inherent in that was this um, internal timeline, internal clock that we all had about we were going to, you know, change the incentives in Medicare and to really address minority and rural health disparities. And, and you know, the intentions were good and the mission was clear. Um, I think that what happened, though, was when COVID hit our shores, um, I remember we were actually on the cusp of reintroducing that legislation again, and I and it just became clear to us that we were too late, you know. And for all of the people that Mr. Lewis had been concerned about um, making sure that uh, that 
that the the disparities and the social determinants of health that they were dealing with were addressed that we we um, that we had missed that window of opportunity to to protect them and and so you know now in the era of COVID, um, like if we're going to really do community health, you know, without a vaccine at the you know at the point at that time there was no vaccine, so we were thinking, you know, without a vaccine and without a really effective treatment or a cure. Um, the only tools we have are public health tools. And so if you want to do community health, you need to bring in the community and those voices about what is important to them. So is it economic stability? Is it food insecurity? Is it transportation? Like those things need to be addressed and those things need to be at the forefront. Um, or I think, you know, we'll, we'll again miss the mark. I mean, I think this is a key part of the conversation. And it, and it gets at one of the issues of, you know, who's defining value? And, uh, you know, is it the patient? Is it the uh, provider? Is it the insurance company? Is it the employer? And, and each one of those has a value proposition that, that they are going, they're going to define value differently. And as you, as you pointed out, you know, the patient's have certain aspects of value that that has been teased out by these focus groups. And the kinds of things that they look at from a value proposition are not necessarily what the government or a third party payer might define as value. So that disconnect, we we have to try and figure out how to uh, get everyone on the same page because we can all embrace the concept of value. And somebody says, you know, what do you think of value-based care? And you ask 10 people, what do you think of value-based care? And all 10 people say, I support value-based care. But each one of those people is going to have a different definition of what constitutes value. And that's, so we've got this, it was kind of like what we were talking about earlier. We've got this broad buy-in to the concept of value-based care. But what each of us means when it gets down to how do you operationalize that is different. And so what movement is life and what root cause are trying to get at is this idea that there is a component of value here at that patient level that isn't part of the conversation. Because the people who are defining these things are people who sit in the boardrooms of insurance companies who sit in the, the offices at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, you know, the people who sit elsewhere. And it's not the people who are at the dinner table who are having their concept and their vision of value that's part of the conversation. And that's what I think uh, Congressman Lewis was trying to get at uh, and, and has for his career, his career was to say, you know, worry about the people, worry about the patients where is their voice in this conversation? So the findings uh, from these focus groups um, have been captured in a publication uh, called Values Defined by Whom. Um, this is a Movement is Life publication, and we will make this available to our listeners. The publication also includes a helpful analysis of the value-based care concept and elaborates on unintended consequences that we've discussed today. So I think there is a general consensus that there is a disconnect uh, in how patients define value and how 
other stakeholders define value. Um, Tom, could you share perhaps how the Root Cause Coalition is addressing the need for better communication and treating patients with respect? Uh, last year, the Root Cause Coalition uh, released um, our status of health equity report for 2020. And um, part of that included an eight point call to action by 2025. And, uh, you know, in the era of COVID for 2021, uh, we decided we needed to focus down on maybe four areas that would be the best use of our energy and time and, and should really be the, the focus. Uh, one of those um, for, for us is going to be advocating for uh, policies to improve cultural competence in the healthcare workforce, um, and also advocating for uh, um, policies that address um, specific health disparities stemming from systemic racism, but also maternal and infant mortality and uh, mental health. So um, uh, I think in, in included in that would be the uh, Equality and Medicare and Medicaid Treatment Act and ensuring uh, payment for non-clinical services. So a strong advocacy agenda, uh, and but also lifting up the work that our members are doing and uh, bringing people together to share best practices and strategies uh, to, uh, to truly uh, uh, to affect some change. So Bill and Tom, I want to thank you for joining us today and thank you all for what you are doing in continuing to advance health equity. And in closing, I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us today. If you would like to download the publication mentioned earlier, Values Defined by Whom, please go to this podcast on our website at www.movementislifecaucus.com where you will also find a link to the transcript of this discussion. Stay safe, be well, and goodbye for now.